Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on March 8, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Michael Biedenbaugh, the executive director of Preservation South Carolina. We'll talk about some of the projects that Mike's team is working on, but in a metaphorical sense, we'll discuss what it means to be aware of our heritage and how it might relate to our present-day political discourse. Now, to be sure, our past wasn't always glory and fame, and there are certainly some significant areas where reconciliation is appropriate. But today, we're going to focus on the sense of community and our sense of belonging that has been, in many ways, uprooted in our pursuit of a promising future. Allow me to ask you this. Is everyone included in our future? Or is the country fracturing and leaving large parts of itself behind in a blind pursuit of a sense of success? So by preserving and restoring our past, we have an opportunity to gain a deeper understanding of ourselves and the precious sense of strong community that, unless it's rescued, may well leave an open wound that will undermine and sabotage our future. Michael Biedenbaugh is a South Carolina native. He was born in Prosperity, South Carolina, in the shadow of his great-grandfather's home. Like many people, Mike's life traveled a full circle. He left Prosperity and served in the U.S. Navy for five years on board the USS South Carolina. Then he attended the University of South Carolina and Columbia University in New York and obtained a degree in International Studies and History. Following school, he moved to New York and helped build a product marketing company that catered to the entertainment industry with offices in New York and Los Angeles. But in 1991, he moved back to Prosperity, bringing the corporate headquarters with him. In short order, he became socially involved as a member of the local planning commission and the chair of the County Board of Zoning Appeals. He also joined the Board of Palmetto Trust and was elected to Prosperity's city council. After a high-pressure 14-year experience of managing the needs of clients such as DreamWorks, MGM, Island Records, Paramount Pictures, and Philip Morris, Mike decided to focus on the local community and took on managing the social studies program for Newberry Academy Middle School and High School. A quick note about Preservation South Carolina. Preservation South Carolina is a nonprofit organization operating in South Carolina since 1990, and it is dedicated to the preservation and protection of historic and irreplaceable architectural heritage sites throughout South Carolina. It advocates for historic preservation with an active voice raised to state government leaders on behalf of preservation legislation and in community efforts to save historic properties. It also seeks to educate people about the state's history and culture. Please note that Michael emphasizes that the views he expresses are his based on his experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which he may be affiliated. Michael, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Well, Dan, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I want you to tell us a little bit about your organization, your restoration projects, but uh, with uh, keeping an eye toward the human side of restoration, that is, how you convince people that these restoration projects are good for the community as well as good for the soul. Well, it's, it's a fascinating thing, the concept of preservation in a, in a world and in a country, and especially in a state where um, old can sometimes be demonized as bad and new and shiny is always something that's focused on in, economic, in modern economic development. And so for whatever reason, God has blessed me with an eye to the traditional ever since i was a child i was always drawn to old buildings 
and um, um, I loved going through my town and and seeing the old houses and asking my grandmother who used to live there. It, I felt like they always spoke to me. So whatever I did professionally, I always brought to me a sense of of purpose and and historic place and how it affects me in my life, which is why when I uh, joined the Navy, when I sat down, and anybody that goes into the military, the first couple of days of boot camp can be pretty traumatic. <laughs> and the first thing I did was open up my Blue Jackets manual, which was like the boot camp Bible for Navy cadets and, and um, uh, folks just joining boot camp. And there I turned, the first page I turned to was a picture of the USS South Carolina. Oh, mm-hmm. And I just felt that was the first time where I understood the concept of full circle. Uh, here I was in San Diego with my head shaved, sitting in my underwear with 30 other guys, not knowing who they were, not knowing what my future was going to be or how many push-ups I was going to have to do that day. And there in front of me was my home state represented by a nuclear-powered guided missile cruiser. And I sat there and said, I have to be on that ship. That's my place. Yeah. And so um, – you know, and, and I did, I was the kid that was the class clown. My brother was the one that answered all the Jeopardy questions when we watched Jeopardy at night. I was the class clown in the back of the class. I didn't do that well in high school. I dropped out of college and I sat there and, and felt how the place and knowing South Carolina and that goal of me being back on that ship. Uh, when I went into school in A school to be a quartermaster, which in the Navy is, is, um, um, is a navigation. Mm-hmm. I made sure I would be at the top of my class so I can choose what ship I can get on. And I was able to do that third in my class. And I was able to pick the USS South Carolina and I served on her for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so that is the basis of my experience and everything that I've, I've, I've done when I was on town council, it was all about trying to talk about putting in policy to save the historic buildings that were in prosperity uh, because so many had been torn down. When I left to go to the Navy and I came back um, uh, after I moved back from New York, I was astonished at all the buildings I grew up with. So many of the buildings I grew up with had been lost, and they were the identifiers for me, for town. You know, the, the, the old Wise Hotel that stood on the corner right next to downtown, built in the 1850s, gone. Mm. It was a bank now. And, and so I, I realized how much less I felt, how much less home it felt to me, and how we wanted to protect what didn't. So I've always had an eye to that and a sensitivity to that, um, that is, you know, that little piece of life that I can bring to my professional mode. And, and I, try to, I try to interpret for other folks who may not be so intuitive with it to try to share with them. And, 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 and to get them to learn the language of preservation um, without thinking it's something that is an unnatural thing. You know, so many times when we work with developers, uh, we, we get the response that it is, uh, well, it's old and nobody's living there and the market has spoken. So it's, it's normal. It should be torn down. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what our biggest uh, focus is in dialogue in trying to communicate that 
markets are created and you can in, in and you can invest value into something to to uplift it. And so that's what we do at Preservation South Carolina. We go to these places that have been neglected um, and empty and abandoned and try to uplift that value, try to communicate its value, because if you can communicate and show value, then then value gets attracted to it and becomes more valuable. Uh, and, and so we get things very inexpensively. Uh, sometimes buildings are even given to us. And, and through framing it in a way that shows its true value, we're able to attract investment and make it live again and help it tell the story uh, of its existence and how it affected society when it was built and how it can affect positive, positively the society and the community in which it, uh, it, it relives again. This was sort of getting at, too, like the human side of restoration, because you you are restoring a building, which is a structure, basically, right? So, but it, there's right. more to that structure, right? Does this hearken to a time when people were more connected? And now, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this perhaps too metaphorically, but, you know, society moves on and sort of forgets about uh, the value of the things that it's leaving behind. And so your well, restoration it, it, project helps them remember that. You, you, well, and you're absolutely correct. The, the, the way we look at it is, is buildings are, are repository of the human condition that built them, right? It, it's really not about bricks and mortar. You know, you can, you can elevate and you see the symbolism of magnificent architecture, beautiful dental molding. Um, look at the divine proportions that's built into the scale of an old structure that an architect understood and built it, and it's a beautiful building. But it's really more than that. Um, what really makes it resonate is, is how it can share the story of the people. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it, it's the difference between what makes a house a home. Mm-hmm. And what makes a town a community? It, 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 that is the human spirit and the human engagement uh, that is so valuable. And what teaches us how to make better communities, how to make communities out of just towns. It is towns that are failing, the small towns all over the country, uh, rural towns that are failing. But those that learn how to turn themselves into communities are the ones that start turning around. And we do that. Our little slice of, of what we engage in is helping to put soul into the flesh of old buildings. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's like the human condition. We're a carcass made of bone. And right. you look at us and that's all we are. But that's not all we are. We're a soul. And, and our spirit is how we elevate mm-hmm. uh, around us. Well, buildings can do that, too, when you know the story and can and can put that story back in there and it's a value there that resonates yeah. um, beyond just the structure and that's what we try to bring back well that's interesting you know and you pointed out that you know what's happening in south carolina is you know in terms of small towns losing their um really in a sense losing their identity as these old buildings are are left to the wrecking ball um, but, you know, it also happens in the big cities as well. I mean, there's this thing called gentrification, which, um, 
it basically tears into these sub communities, even within big cities. I, I live in, in uh, we're near St. Louis, which is like one of the smallest big cities out there, I suppose. But we have this problem a lot here, where communities that are in the inner cities, um, economically deprived to some degree, but there are there are situations where eminent domain laws are used to displace these communities and and mm-hmm. uh, leave residents to fend for themselves. And um, this is all being done in the name of progress, but I, I guess what you're saying too is that in a collective sense, we're leaving a piece of our souls behind in this process. Well, we are. And uh, I, I, I'll give you a, a, a short story of, of that tying into how, especially big urban centers, we had a meeting with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, of which we're members, we're partners with. Um, and we had a meeting, a national meeting in Detroit back probably six years ago, pretty much at the peak of how bad Detroit was. I mean, Detroit, if there was any major city that looked like a war zone in some of the neighborhoods, it was Detroit. Mm-hmm. And and it was, it was fascinating to see it on such a large scale. But what really cued into me was how absolutely similar it was to the little towns all over South Carolina where – you go down a main street and there be, you know, there used to be 10 or 20 storefronts that now all those storefronts are caving in and the stores are torn down and it's just, it's just desolation. You know, when I went up to Detroit, people talking about the economic depression of Detroit at the time, of course, now there is a big upswing in Detroit. So I'm talking 10 years ago, but what it did was it inspired us to come back to South Carolina and see at the time, We've got 100, 150 little Detroits all over the state. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, how do you address that? How do you help? Uh, because many of the reasons why these little towns have failed is because of government policy. Mm-hmm. Government policy to invest in sewer and water lines to stretch out from the town out into uh, the countryside. That benefits, you know, some large landowner who wanted water run out this place and all of a sudden he puts in a housing development and all of a sudden that creates commerce out there Mm -hmm. and it saps the ability of the center core of the town to maintain its commerce in the central area um, of where it traditionally had been for 100 years but what does that do it makes living in the communities more expensive it makes tax rates go up all of a sudden roads that were fine being two lanes all of a sudden now have to be four lanes so there's more investment and so we worked with uh, Governor Nikki Haley and uh, Representative James Smith. James Smith was a Democrat. Nikki Haley, of course, was a Republican. And um, James Smith put forth this legislation along with a lot of bipartisan support. uh, We created the Abandoned Buildings Revitalization Act. Uh And what that was was to create a tax credit to incentivize people to go to buildings that have been abandoned. Well, when I say abandoned, it just means underutilized. Somebody still owned them, but there was nothing in them. Uh Um, And to attract investment back to the inner cities to, um, to do that. And we, um, we pulled that uh, legislation together. Uh, Governor Haley signed it. And now we have that incentive and more and more of these old buildings are now being invested in. And it makes it less expensive for the communities because you don't have to build new sewer lines, new water lines, or new roads. You're just reinvesting back in the core where all these services already exist. Mm-hmm. And it makes 
it, 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 it makes the cost analysis um, less expensive for the society to support it. So that's one of those structural things um, that we saw as a solution that we needed to engage with. So that's what we created here in South Carolina to help with that. I see. And so the idea there then is to, um, you know, once you renovate these these buildings and structures in the towns, then you could pull in hopefully people from uh, from the cities, the big cities, to move back to the small towns. Is that is that the general idea? That, well, yeah. And and so you have two things that happen. You have a, a a flight of capital, right, where people left, but you also have a a a flight of intellectual capital. You had mm-hmm. you you had people that were the entrepreneur class that wanted to have their own businesses, but they're they're growing up and in a town of a hundred people to a thousand people and realize their skills, they can leverage their skills better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And and so you have a balance of, of let's bring back the infrastructure, let's get these old buildings restored, but then you gotta attract these people to come back. Right. And and through technology uh, internet, Wi-Fi, all these ways people can stay um, connected. Um, you know, you you can attract those folks to come back and to start their businesses, and it and it works. But but what really attracts them is that traditional sense of community that these buildings represent. That's like the the visual thing, and then they come back and put life back into them. Um, many times we're talking with folks. And, and, you know, in a town that has no restaurant, a town of, say, a thousand people, and, and they really don't have a, a nice restaurant. They have to drive, people have to drive 30 minutes to the, to the nicer restaurants. And they say, well, a nice restaurant just won't exist here. And I tell you, there's one thing that's universal is wherever you've got good food and good music and an experience that uh, is unique, people will be there. Mm-hmm. They will come. And uh, so it's all about attracting that entrepreneurial class back into the community. Attract someone that knows how to run a restaurant. It's really, you know, we have we have a community now, a little community called Society Hill. And we uh, own um, an amazing old store built in 1820 called the Coker Rogers Store. And uh, Society Hill was one of the earliest communities in the eastern part of South Carolina called the PD. And this store was at one time the um, it's a big, beautiful store, about 12,000 square foot, built in 1828. The family ran it as a store for well over 140 years. Mm. Um, And then they just shut it down Mm -hmm. and it got in such bad shape. We were able to get it from the descendants of the family. And now we're trying to find someone to come in. And, and in this little town of less than 1,000 people, what we show people is, but within 30 minutes of this little place, there's 250,000 people because of Florence. It's in a hub of an area. Mm-hmm. And out the road out in front of it is 8,000 people drive by. Mm-hmm. So because there's nothing there now, people tend to think, well, if there's nothing there now, it, it, there's a reason. Right. Well, the only reason is, we just need the right person to come in there and and um, and build a successful business, and people will come to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the field of dreams, that, build and, it, and they I will come. To, <laughs> well, well, it is, but I do have to say this works better in the Sun Belt of the country than it does, say, in the Northeast and in, in in the old traditional Rust Belt. One of the 
things when we were up in Michigan and Pennsylvania with the National Trust meetings. Um, you know, we down here have the luxury to be able to say because so many people want to move down here because of no snow and things like that. So that works for us. Mm-hmm. We, we, if, if, if we have historic houses that are available, there is a pool of people who will purchase them. We just have to intervene, get involved, stabilize the house, and people will come. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of markets in this country where it takes a lot more work. And I, and I recognize that. So I'm definitely speaking from a South Carolina Southern perspective on that. Yeah. Well, I think in, in the Northern towns too, I mean, uh, St. Louis is kind of a curious position geographically. We get the, we get the snow in the winter, we get the, the baking hot sun in the summer, but you know, it, it, you go further North here, there's, there's small towns obviously, and they're, they're all used to dealing with the snow and everything. So that just becomes part of their culture. So I don't think that would be mm-hmm. a, a real big issue. You'd still find a lot of people moving into those towns. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So you, uh, the, if I may backtrack a little bit, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, getting uh, the, the politicians involved. You mentioned uh, a couple of, of names here, the, uh, the governor. And and I was just sort of wondering, um, and I just sort of have to ask this because I'm thinking about this. It's been on my mind that the polarization of our politics, um, is it uh, is it is it interfering with this process at all? Is it is it? maybe causing this to become a political hot potato or, or is it, is it, uh, are you still able to get a lot of things done even in the light of the, uh, solar high, highly polarized uh, situation we have these days? Well, it, it, things can be polarized. It, it, you know, the, the, with us on the front lines, the polarization comes when, you know, this big, huge building, that everybody loves, but it's been empty for years. And all of a sudden a developer comes in and says, this building's too old and we want to build something else and it must come down. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you get into the, the symbolism um, over the substance, uh, the symbolism of what people think should be there versus the substance of what really can. Mm-hmm. And because what happens is many of these developers bring their own package of here's all I do and this is all we know and we know how to make this successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, a perfect example is the Palmetto Compress building in Columbia, South Carolina, this magnificent old warehouse um, that had uh, been there for years, been used as storage. And the people who came to put a contract on it to buy it um, – Basically, all they did was student housing where it was three-story walk-up type of stuff that you would really more likely see out in the suburbs than in an inner-city area and an urban area like what we have in downtown Columbia. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was amazing when we would try to sit down and talk with the owners and say, there's a better way to do this that will bring more income. Mm-hmm. And because these folks had never dealt with historic preservation tax credits or the systems to do that, they would not only they wouldn't only not engage with us and not mm-hmm. listen to us, but they would go out of their way to to really ignore us. And I had one of the developers turn his back on me when I walked into the room to go shake his hand. Oh wow! Because they yeah, because it was well, you people are just preservationists and 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 and. And they really don't understand, many of them, who do this type of practice, how um, 
how much of their way of doing business is such a narrow silo and so limited. They make good money doing what they do. But what communities have to remember is the type of folks they want to attract an investment in their towns have to have a wider scope of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one of the things that we're constantly running into. Another example of that was the Wilkins House in Greenville. Here's this magnificent Second Empire House built in the 1870s, one of the finest mansions in, in uh, Greenville. And the company that came and bought it uh, wanted to put up an elderly care facility. And it was one of those corporations that know how to target communities. And, and there is a need for a memory loss elderly care facility in Greenville, without a doubt. But their template was, and their banking system and everything was built around, this is the type of structure we built, and that's it. They come in, they scrape flat, and put this whole new building there, because that's how the banking financial system would support, and that's how their business model ran. Mm -hmm. And even though we came in with an architect that said, listen, you could take this mansion and use it as your lobby and entrance and put all this behind it, they refused to do it. They refused to even consider it. We were fortunate that we had a gentleman step forward that said, I'll restore it if I can get help to move it. And lo and behold, within a year, we were moving the heaviest structure in South Carolina, 800 tons of masonry, two blocks, and is now a beautiful home uh, two blocks away and restored and used for receptions. So we were able to step in and save it. Wow. But, but, But the polarization, you know... It's something that we see reflected in our politics now, but I've seen it reflected in in everyday life when it comes to perceptions of what of of how buildings should be built, of private property versus public input. Those type of things have always been at conflict on the things we work in, Um, and and it's one of the challenges. Well, I was just uh, I was going to try to build on that a little bit because I know that um, a lot of these uh, small town banks have been consolidated into large banks, and you know small town banks have maybe have sort of a romantic view of our past or something, but things are done more on a handshake in these small town banks. But they have been gobbled up, haven't they, by the big banks? And this is what part of what causes this sort of impersonal attitude when. A builder comes into town, they don't really care so much about the culture of the town or anything. They just want to build their structure and make money off of it and leave. That's one of the biggest challenges in attracting capital back into small communities is is the banking system is not instinctive to helping small businesses grow on a very local level. Now, that's a big generalization, and there's going to be Oh, you know, 100,000 bankers listening to this going, wait a minute, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But in general, it is to the degree that what you see growing in small towns is corporate franchise systems that, have, that are tied into the global banking markets that is the easiest capital to achieve and the easiest thing to, to have capitalized are bringing in these corporate entities into the small towns. So instead of having five or six hamburger places that are privately owned, that are owned by local entrepreneurs that are independent in a lot of these towns, you have the franchise hamburger places. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the grandchildren 
of the community leaders that own their own businesses are now the employees of somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you have um, a, um, the capital that used to circulate because business owners would be in town. They would have their capital. They would make their profits. Things might've been a little more expensive per capita for buying things because it was all local and you were buying it local, but all that money stayed in the community. Mm-hmm. So a hundred years ago, if you wanted to build a church, there was enough wealth within the community for the leadership of the church to pull their money and build a church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a very nice one. You see some beautiful, magnificent uh, structures because there was capital recirculating within these communities. And that's just not the case anymore. You go along a bypass in many of these towns, and, and I see a lot of commerce. But what I really see is, a, is, is invisible suction hoses sucking capital out of the community and sending it to urban areas like Charlotte, like Atlanta, or, you know, with Walmart, even China, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the capital is going elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the challenges that we're dealing with when we get a large project in a small town and how to capitalize it. Perfect example is one we're working on right now, which is in Edgefield, South Carolina, the Edgefield Hotel. This hotel was built in 1919, and it was, um, it was the centerpiece of the community. Uh, owned the town square, three stories tall, and un- it went under hard times, um, as most things did post-World War II, um, a lot of people left the community, and so it sat, it sat empty for, right now, close to 30 years. Mm-hmm. The back ballroom where the old ballroom and, and restaurant was, it caved in. Oh. Well, we were able to get hold of it, and so then how do we attract capital to it? Mm-hmm. And, and we've been very fortunate in this state because of the, the special tax credit preferences we have, like the abandoned buildings that I mentioned that we did six years ago. But we also have historic tax credits through the National Park, uh, through the National Park Service, uh, federal tax credits, and we have a very generous state tax credit. And because of those tax credits that are redeemed, they are redemptions for the bad government policies that suck capital out. I see those as as the um, th- that they rectify the problem by helping to attract capital back into these places. Mm-hmm. So we now have it under contract of an amazing firm um, out of Greenville that is looking at this small community as a future. So now we have on plans for this place that had been empty for 35, 40 years, uh, 34 rooms, a spa, a restaurant, and a bar, uh-huh. and a pool in the back. Wow. And but but. But it is a struggle. Yeah. It's taken us a year and a half to even get to the point where we, we think we might be able to pull this off. Whereas in 1919, when it was going to be built, the local farmers gathered their money and they invested and they did it. Yeah. So that's the difference. Yeah. And, and um, that's part of the struggle. And whatever policy, whatever policy situation comes up in the future – that has the, the has the to happen to help rectify is to help reinforce the ability of capital being available to small communities and to small entrepreneurs uh, mm-hmm. for investment. 
we've got to turn that around. Yeah, I was going to say it's really hard to reverse that trend because you're you're. Um, I think the days of having local communities just be local and, and uh, somewhat isolated and therefore able to recirculate their own capital within within the town. Now everything is is globalized now. It, it, at least in in so far as the United States is concerned, it's nationalized, and so you know it's really hard to turn around this uh, this trend. Um, well, well, I don't think I, I think I think. Um... I think the concept of isolation does not necessarily have to be part of being small and circulating money because um, a perfect example is in Newberry. We have a wonderful new coffee shop that is specialized to bring in um, uh, coffee and product from these villages in Central America, direct links to growers to try to have um, uh, organic product that come from all over the globe and they have this wonderful coffee shop in Newberry that that's selling it mm-hmm. um, and so th- there's ways to capture the um, the good things that globalism can by bringing products by, by the democratization of globalism by individuals being able to tap into uh, products from all over the country and connect them to your community you know, when I was growing up I, in prosperity, uh, you know, growing up on a farm, first time I ever ate at a Chinese restaurant, I was probably 20 years old. Mm-hmm. There were no Chinese restaurants in Newberry County that, that my folks would take us to. Yeah. And, and, and so it's amazing now to see all the diversity of the food that's available because of the global marketplace being opened up and accessible. The only thing we have to remember is how to make sure the capital that helps support that is not uh, so big and far away. We need to be able to keep that capital circulating in these small towns. And, and I see the trend happening. You know, what we're doing with the, with the Edgefield Hotel today would not have been possible, I don't think, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, because the tax credits are uh, – because the tax credits have been here long enough that there are – investors, bankers, and developers who know how to use them enough to where we have a a pool of companies that do nothing but do tax credit development, Hmm. whereas that wasn't the case 30 years ago, right? Hmm. It it took a time of education, of time to people to learn the systems on how to to leverage the historic credits, but now they're there. And Hmm. so now I get calls from people going, is there another mill nearby? that we can invest in. So it's happening and it's adopting for the big projects. What we want to do and what we tried to do with the abandoned buildings credit is to help that capital work on the smaller projects like this hotel mm-hmm. instead of only the big, huge projects where you turn a giant old textile mill for $30 million, you turn it into apartments. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we want to find the smaller buildings that have 15 apartments where a building owner can can leverage that and make income out of it, and um, we see the lowest hanging fruit on that is historic buildings to try to attract it to that. Well, it's I think it's very interesting that you know you're you're able to work this this math out the way that you have and and, and actually you know sort of in a sense really revive the not by restore by reviving the historic buildings you're reviving the sense of community in, in these smaller towns. Um, one of my one of my biggest concerns, though, is that you know, you, is it 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 
probably gets a lot easier now or somewhat easier to, to bring people from the big cities back out to the small towns because there's, you know, high speed internet access is becoming available and, and a lot of the things that, that the uh, working people really require in the small town. But my concern here is that how do you, how would you prevent uh, what I would call perhaps rural gentrification? Um, in other words, the people that are already in the small town, um, wouldn't this sort of rural gentrification sort of overrun the culture by displacing the, you know, the people in the small towns that, um, you know, that the race to the future have been leaving behind? How do you, how do you revive the community? How do you keep that spirit alive in the community? Well, one of the, one of the biggest um, reasons, especially here in, in South Carolina, for displacement of, of traditional residents, and this happens a lot in African-American communities in the, in the urban areas, is the way our property tax system works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I personally think it, it, it is a terrible, tragic system mm-hmm. that forces someone that has had land and had a home all their life that they bought in 1950, 1960. And just because someone buys a lot next door and puts up a huge house and makes the property value 20 times more than it was when they bought their house. Mm -hmm. Those people that had the house, even though they have no desire to sell it, even though they have no desire to, they want to give it to their children, all of a sudden they're taxed as if they are, as if they have something that valuable. Mm -hmm. Now, they do have something valuable, but they're not ready or willing to cash out on that value. Right. Right. So they're penalized for being in something so long, and the system is set up. And, and, and I think in some communities it was intentionally set up this way so that it would price people out of land so people that do have wealth and income and ability to develop could grab hold of that property and use it for themselves and their own profit-making, and people are displaced. You really see that in the low country of South Carolina, especially in the African-American community and the Gullah community. The Gullah, in the Gullah Geechee Corridor um, is an area on the eastern shore of South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina. And we've been doing work on the Fusky Island. Mm-hmm. And the Fusky Island has a tragic history of developers from Hilton Head um, coming in, especially in the 70s and 80s, and manipulating things to the point of where the, the poor African-American residents that have been there for couple hundred years, some of them owning land since they were freed from enslavement mm-hmm. and losing it yeah. because of, of people manipulating the property tax system. So that's one thing that needs to be rectified mm-hmm. um, around the country. And, and that's a local issue that localities need to figure out. Um, but bringing investment back is vital for these places to go. So, so we have to figure out how to bring investment back, how to make property values go up. Mm-hmm. for those who want to invest and make income off of them, but not penalize those who happen to be there first yeah. and not willing to sell, but then and not and, and not making them have to sell because it prices them out of the market. It, it can get even worse for people who don't own property if they're renting. And, uh, you know, there yeah. this happens a lot in the inner cities as well, where, you know, a large majority or maybe not a majority, but a large number of people are renting and their landlord sees prices go, going up. Uh, and they make a calculation to say, well, you know, I'm just going to get rid of this place now because I'm going to get a lot of money out of it 
because of where it is. And um, the people who are renting are really given no choice. They have to go. And that they do. destroys they communities. Do. And, yeah. and, yep. And, um, and, and it also, um, you know, which is why then there is a move that we have something called LIHTC credits, uh, low-income housing credit. Because one of the biggest problems happening in many of these medium-sized towns, when you have the working class, the folks that are going to be the ones that are going to be doing the service providers, you know, who's the waiters and waitresses, who's the dishwashers, who's the people sitting in the, check, in the, in the drive-through window at the Hardee's or McDonald's. You know, these folks are on the lower economic level of the community, and many of them are being priced out of the community. Mm-hmm. And and um, and some of the landlords, and I know many landlords here in Prosperity and others that are small landlords that might own five, six houses that they're renting. But again, the property tax system penalizes them because if you don't live in your house, you're taxed at a higher assessment mm-hmm. because they think, well, if you're a business, you can afford it. But all that does is make the rents higher for right. the for the renters who are living in the place. Yeah. So that that. That type of public policy conversation has to happen on on the development side. Uh, One of the things we did in South Carolina to help with keeping property tax on the historic buildings is we have something called the Bailey Bill, named after the legislator who sponsored it. But what it does is a, a building that is dilapidated in terrible shape, if a developer comes in to develop it, the property tax is frozen for up to 20 years at the pre-rehabilitation level. Mm-hmm. So that, so people don't get penalized for making investment because you come to buy a place and the property tax may be $2,000, and all of a sudden after you redevelop it, it's all of a sudden $20,000. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that way it helps, it helps uh, attract investment by not penalizing people for making an investment. Yeah. There's other things, too. And when I lived out in California for many years, and they have this thing out there called Prop 13. Um, I believe it was called Prop 13, but it put a cap on how fast your property value can go up. So um, if you are a longtime homeowner and your property value starts to go up just because of what's happening all around it, um, there is a limited amount that the government can increase it uh, per year. So it's somewhat of a compromise in that area. The, the problem is that if you sell your house or if you sell your you know, house that you may own or something like that, then the next person that purchases it will then have that higher tax base to work with. But, uh, well, that, that's right. And there's been some things that, that we've been working on. I was part of, we had a, a big leap in our taxes, uh, property taxes here in in South Carolina, and I was part of a group that put that did a big pushback on that. Um, and uh, there was a thing circulating around where property tax would only reflect after you for what you bought the property for. Mm-hmm. And so, if someone had bought the property in 1950, the property taxes would basically be the same no matter what happened. But then, when they sold it, then there was a sales tax that they helped capture some of that value. But that way the market would, would help take care of it. And it wouldn't force these people to sell. They can keep it as long as they want. And so there's there's different ways to try to to try to work around that. But regarding our little segment of historic preservation, what we did in South Carolina was the Bailey Bill. And so that that that's one policy initiative that has been done that that's making a difference. Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's good. It sounds like you're you're taking care of not only the buildings, but also with an eye toward taking care of the people that uh, that are affected by by the uh, by the situation by rising taxes and so on. Um, well, one of one of the thing one of the things that 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 I remind everybody when they're talking about preservation is saying, you know, these old buildings because they're old, they just can't be left to be turned into a, a, a museum. It, mm-hmm. Economics built these buildings, and only economics and sustainable economics will have them survive and put them to use. So, so it has to be an economic development model, and um, and and that always attracts the intellectual capital to help support that. Wonderful, good. Well, I'm uh, just about out of questions here. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, wrap this thing up? Just appreciate the opportunity. Um, one to share about what we do in South Carolina, and and um, it's 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 wonderful to see things shifting the way they are. There is change in the air, with how small towns are developing. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of presumptions that need to be challenged. Um, it's one of the things why I personally um, really uh, like what the Alliance Party is doing it's trying to find the middle road between the symbolic poles that it appears the the two major parties have 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 gotten up into their own corners um and it helps add to the conversation on a public sphere because we see it firsthand in communities whenever everybody talks and engages there's a lot more wider diverse views going on than than you would you would think is happening based on some of the outcomes, especially in the current race. Yeah. Uh, and it well gives played. me hope. It gives me hope. Good. And so um, it's wonderful to see these old places brought back to life. And it represents to me the, the life this nation can, can, can feel again through its communities. So yes. I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Well, well put. Well put. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Michael Biedenbaugh, the Executive Director of Preservation South Carolina, and we've been discussing historic res- restoration projects and how it, in a metaphorical sense, relates to issues that uh, scale up to the national level. I appreciate you stopping by this evening, Michael. Well, Dan, thank you, and uh, have a wonderful day. It's a good day. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark podcast, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.